Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Thank you. As you can see, I'm moving very gingerly because uh, I'm an orthopedic disaster here. I, literally, tomorrow morning, I'm going to go to NYU and have hip replacement surgery tomorrow morning. No, 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 I'm not saying that for sympathy. But I, I wanted to say... That I wanted to say it occurred to me that if I don't, for any reason, if I don't survive the surgery, if I don't make it out of this surgery, then this interview tonight will be my last interview. <laughs> for here's the thing. And I kind of thought about that and I thought, if this is going to be my last interview, who do I want it to be with? Who would be the last? Is it Michelle Obama? Or is it Taylor Swift? Is it, uh, uh, you know, who is it in the firmament there that I want to interview? And there was only one name I could come up with. If I had to do my last interview, it would be with our guest tonight. Please welcome author Michael Wolf. So um, I want to begin by saying that uh, those are some very nice shoes you have on. They look like new shoes to me. Have you been doing a lot of shopping lately? I've always done a lot of shopping. <laughs> I am, uh... So before we get into the obvious subject, which you are certainly have talked to death, uh, I'm very grateful to you being here. Uh, but I'm always interested in people's origins in terms of their career. And I was wondering if you could talk first about where you grew up. And you grew up in Patterson? I was born in Patterson and grew up on a on a, a somewhat whiter hill as rising out of Patterson, um, and um, um, and then came to New York. What your dad as, do? Uh, he was in the advertising business. My mother was a newspaper reporter. Oh, really? So there was some journalistic DNA in that household. Oh, totally. Who did your mother write for? The Patterson Evening News, mm-hmm. daily newspaper. The political bent in the household was what, if anything? 
We were Democrats. My father was sort of a backroom New Jersey politico. He was never indicted, though. That's a short list. Yes. Uh, and and uh, when you finished school, you went to college at... Uh, you, you transferred I started to at Vassar College. Um, and, then I came, and then I got a job at the New York Times and moved to New York and went to Columbia. To the journalism school? Uh, no, it's an unfinished. Uh, I, get, I was a junior when I transferred to Columbia. What did you major in? History. History. Mm-hmm. And you were at the New York Times for how long? What was that experience like for you? It was a horrible experience. Um, <laughs> it was one of those things, you know, this is the only thing I ever wanted to do was, was to go to the New York Times. And um, so I got a job. I was 20, I think. I was a copy boy. And I walked in, and I think literally in 10 minutes, I knew that if this was life, I was not going to make it. Why? Why? It just everyone seemed so depressed. Seemed there, and 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 there was something about the New York Times that it's on these copy desks. It was very gray, and in an era, it was filled with smoke. And also, everybody had a tick. Really? Saying, yeah. Um, so that, that explains was, a lot, actually. Yes. I've been. So that was so. I was there for about a about a year, um, and then basically, I've never had a job since. Well, did you did you sense early on? You were what age when you were at the Times? How long were you at the Times? Twenty, about a year. So you were just there for a year. And did you sense early on that that a that you wanted to be a writer? Did you know you wanted to be a writer? Uh, yes, you I mean, mean there was yeah no sort of no question about no question that, that you some, wanted to, and you knew what you wanted way. to write or you weren't sure. Fiction, nonfiction. You wanted to write nonfiction. I, I know I wanted to write fiction, but um, you wanted to write fiction. Yeah. Yes, some I people was, would say that you have written fiction. No, so. The but, truth is, I can't write fiction, so it must not be. Well, but, but 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 you wanted to write fiction, and what happened? No one was buying your no no stories? no no. Oh, worse than that, they bought. Well, um, they did. So I wrote an I wrote a first book um, um, when I was twenty five. I wrote a I wrote a book, and it was nonfiction, but it felt like fiction. I mean, I sort of come out of what used to be called the new journalism, and um, and it was really writing writing using fictional techniques to write about real things. Um, but that was a moment in, say, in, the, in, the, in which they sort of said, okay, you did that, that's good, but now you can do what real writers do. You'll write a novel. They gave me a big advance to do this, and, um, and I moved... For your first book. This was my second book. My, so my first book was, this, was a, a, a new journalism um, book called White Kids, um, um, which I, uh, I think it was 1979. But why were they giving um, out big advances then for you if you weren't an, esta- you weren't an established writer? You had, um, you had one well, book. Well, I did. I mean, I wrote this book, and it was quite successful. I mean, well, I got was. a little, little notoriety in it anyway. Um, and then so they gave me an advance to write this novel. I thought, great, I'm going to be a novelist. I moved to Europe. I moved to Rome. Um, I, thought, I saw the whole thing. Um, the whole life in front of me, um, and and I sat down at a at a typewriter then, and um, um, and I began to write the first page of this book over and over and over <laughs> and over again. I, I mean, this was bad. This went on for six years. Of wow, um, it's like The Shining, but in Rome. That's a my very promising career just seeped away every day until there was no career left. 
at some point, I, I would I would venture to guess you realized you didn't want to work for somebody else when you decided to write books. Well, by this full-time. point, no no one would hire me, no so hire I, I was it was not really so a, a, a question. Yes. You were on your own. I had a. Um, a friend from college, this was the 80s, so, and he had made a lot of money on Wall Street and started his own firm. And as I'm still trying to write this book, he said to me, listen, you've become an embarrassment to everyone who's ever known you. Come downtown, I'll give you an office, and we'll do deals. I had never even heard. I didn't even know there was such a thing. Yeah. Um, but I was so grateful, I just immediately put it down, bought a suit, uh, went downtown, and suddenly we were sort of doing deals. This was well, a great give, give time. Give us an example of one deal you did. <laughs> I'm intrigued. What was a deal that was done? Well, we started to invest in, he said, you know about media, and let's, we'll, we'll put money into media companies. Um, now, I had no idea anything about media. I'd never even, you know, other than the fact that I had written a book, um, worked at a newspaper, that's what I knew about the media. But it was like, whatever interests you, we'll do it. I looked around and I said, the National Lampoon magazine. Um, it had peaked and then it had gone down. And I thought, but it was a public company. We could potentially take over this thing. And, um, uh, you know, I could buy myself a job. Uh, did he listen to you? Yes, yes. We, he, he bought the magazine. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we um, invested in this, right. made a, you know, and then somebody else came along. This was the 80s, so you invest in this, and somebody else came along um, and invested more, bought it, um, and we made a ton of money. He said, see, it's easy. Right. <laughs> We're doing deals. Yeah. And, and then, so, so you're a novelist, and you're in Rome, and then you come back and you're doing deals with this gentleman. And after that, is that when you get into the magazine business and start That's writing for magazines? That's when I got into the internet business. The inter- and what, what, so how did that happen? It, it was, um, there was a, ser- a series of, of steps here, and, and um, so I, I found myself running this, um, this uh, small publishing company, which started to publish books about the internet. Now get this, we're publishing books about the internet. Right. Um, and um, and they were they were like they they flew off the shelf. This was like in one of those those moments in which um, um, in which people had heard about the internet, but they had no idea where the internet was. Um, um, so we had this office, and we put them, sort of put a phone number in the book, and then people would call up and they would say, "Is this the internet?" Uh, um, And so this this went on, and then this went on for for um, this kind of rolled into you know somebody then came along and gave me an enormous amount of money um, um, to actually be in the be in the technology business, something I knew absolutely nothing about. Right. Um, and this seems um, to be a pattern with you that. <clears throat> This seems to be a pattern with you that fools just come spilling into your life and throw themselves in your arms, whether it's with their personal uh, uh, insights and confessions and what have you, or bags of money. They just give you bags of money. And, and actually, and then I write a book about them. So, right. so I wrote a book called Burn Rate. This was in right. you know, one of the sort of first books about, about, the, about the internet. And, um, um, and it was a sort of act of 
very conscious revenge against all of the people who had given me money and then I had lost their money but, and they had yelled at me. So, right. um, Is that how you would term it, an yes, act of revenge? Well, yes. I thought, yes, I thought, what can I do? I have to get even with these people. What can I do? I can write a book. Because they made you feel bad. They, yes. Uh, it was m more um, in those moments when, you're, when, you're, when you take, you, you have this money, you've taken money, and, and against a, against what? No, nobody knows why, why you've gotten this money, but everybody is hoping that it will, it will, uh, you know, you're going to, that, this is going to work. Um, and then you reach a, a point where you sort of, sort of clear that it's not going to work. And so I had this big office in, in New York, uh, hundreds of people. You couldn't stop the people from being hired. You would peek out your door and you would see somebody bringing in new desks and people would follow. The investor began to get worried, and, and he kind of moved in or had his people move into this office, then he was there. And, and you would come in, in in the morning, and everybody would try to be civil to each other. Um, and that would last, you know, that would last about 20 minutes, and then you, then you could see the faces distort, and then somebody would say blah, blah, and then, and then that would immediately become, become fuck you, and then it would become no, fuck you. Um, and you would do this thing, and it was just this anger built until, of course, then you ran out of money. Well, at least then... they let it out, unlike the Times, where they kept it in, and they had these ticks all yes. the time right. from holding it in. You know, they, would, they wanted to say fuck you to each other yeah. probably every yes. 20 minutes, too. But they can't do that at the Times, so they, you know. But then I was, I was, I was thrown out of this, this company, and... Um, um, there, there was actually one point in this, because this, this was a remarkable time, um, that I had gone out, we were going to do a deal. Um, and we had flown out to, to, to the West Coast to buy, the, to buy this other company, or they were going to buy us, or I can't even remember. But I do know that all coming back, the entire first class, I was paying for every seat in first class, and it was filled with... I wasn't paying, but the money that somehow was flowing through me um, um, uh, it was filled with my bankers and lawyers, and my lead bankers were, were coming back on the red eye, um, leaned over and said, you, you know you're, um, um, you're, wor you're worth $100 million. Um, and um, um, and he had, we had gone to college together, and he said, I, I want you to buy a... Um, fund the building at the at the school um and uh, and then we talked about what the what the name of the building was going to be and the wolf center for this and, and for this doing all, deals this is totally <laughs> and i got i got home and um um and then for um forever after, as my children now will remember, remember, remember you were standing there when we were worth $100 million. Um, remember how you acted. Remember this. Yeah. And then... A brief shining course, moment. Yes, that lasted about two weeks. Really? Yeah. Now, to, to say that... Because eventually, you, you, when you do the New York Magazine media column, I want to get to, uh, you know, your your terminology for that, but as you're arriving at the place, uh, the, 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 the conversation... 
uh, about the Wolf Center, your moment in the sun where you're worth $100 million is around what year, would you say? Uh, 1997, that would be. Right around when you started, soon after you were to work with New York, correct? Yeah, so I got out And how does that happen? Well, I was thrown out of this company, and then I wrote this book. I didn't know what to, what, and then it was, so I had not been writing for essentially the past 10 years. I had thought, I can't do this anymore, gone, not a possibility um, that I can be a writer. But I was thrown out of this company, and um, I I was, what am I going to do? But I thought, revenge. Um, (laughs) um, And, uh, you know, how revenge is best served in a book, it turns out. Um, And I wrote this this book. I wrote it very quickly, and, um, and it was incredibly satisfying, and it worked, and I thought, hey, I'm pretty good at this. Um... And, um, and then not long after the book came out, New York Magazine called me up and said, do you want to write a, a column about the media? Um, and again, I was like, media? What do I know about media? But, but, but I guess in terms of you as a writer, the person who started out wanting to write uh, fiction and so forth, and uh, when you arrive on the doorstep of, the, of a, uh, New York Magazine to write the media column, who had you become by then? Like, what was your, uh, I don't want to say agenda, but what was your appetite then? What did you want to write about? Reven- and what I just wanted revenge. You wanted revenge. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You had kind of a scorched earth mentality toward well, yeah, it was anyone a, you didn't care for. I found that I had a distinct ability to write about people's weaknesses. I think that's probably it. <laughs> I mean, I found it it incredibly interesting. Oh, there is, you know, that person is flawed in the following ways. Powerful people. Yeah, powerful people or or totally ordinary people. Was it more satisfying for you to to pick apart powerful people? As as the hatchet job of the common man. I could do that, too. Um, But which was more satisfying? Well, um, it didn't make any difference to me. It didn't make any difference. Whoever was, whatever flaws The mighty and the lowly, you're like, boom. Boom, you didn't care. Yes. You're just giving them the curb. You know, I think, I mean, ultimately it was somewhat more commercial to to do this for powerful people. Now, when you, so what was, would you say, I don't want to put any words in anybody's mouth, but what term would you use? I was going to say, by the way, if Trump wanted to really increase his chances for 2020, this water you and I have is probably poisoned right now, so. (laughs) But here's looking at you. Um, the, uh, what would you say is the term? Is it a gossip column? You're writing a gossip column for, you know, um, what word uh, would you use? No, I mean, I mean, I think a gossip column is one thing. This was a, um, what is a gossip column? Um, what's the difference between what you wrote for the New York and what what, uh, Richard Johnson does for page six? What's the difference? I'm, mine are literate and his are illiterate. (laughs) Can't argue with you there. um, Uh, I mean, that's what I was interested in. I was actually really interested in just writing. Just give me, I'm not interested, I was not even, my my subjects were were secondary to the the fact that I could could hang a story on these subjects. I could, I was interested in human nature, in success, failure. Drama. Yeah. 
And then you, so you, other than you talking about the revenge factor in the burn rate experience, you come into this and suddenly, you mean for people who don't know the media pieces that he wrote for the for New York Magazine were very important. I mean, it was like people were just writhing and and convulsing and you know breaking into a cold sweat and vomiting in their office bathroom for fear of being written about by you. Am I am I, am I getting that wrong? No, that's you pressed a lot of buttons yes, in this town for a while. How many years did you do the, the piece? Six years, so six and then, years. I went, then I went to Vanity Fair. And, right. you know. and carried on with something similar. Yeah. And, and how long was it at Vanity Fair? Uh, Four or five yeah, years? Yeah, f- I think five so years. So it's, yeah. it's over a decade. It's a decade yeah. of you covering this beat, if you will. And I'm, I'm wondering, you go in that one end of that, and uh, I mean, I'm not going to say it's a gossip column, but other people certainly have. You come in one end of that and you come out the other end. How did that change you? I mean, other than probably you had somebody make sure nobody was going to punch you in the face when you walked out of, walked into the Four Seasons restaurant. Did anybody ever try to get you in any way? Threaten you? Try to assault no, you? No, but they, but they intended to move tables in restaurants. <laughs> Literally. You had your table, table five at Michael's and so forth. And uh, did you feel that people were uh, concerned about you? I, I felt that there were people who d- intensely disliked me. Right. And you didn't care? No. You thought the benefits of writing the column outweighed the yeah, lack of no, popularity? I, I mean, I can't tell you. The pleasures of writing this column were... Um, I mean, I've never been... I mean, it is the happiest job I can possibly imagine. <laughs> Did you ever write any? Now, I forgot. I, I totally blank out. I mean, I have a good memory. Did you ever th- write anything really shitty about me? Do you remember? <laughs> it's okay. Go ahead. Well, no, that's the other, th- other, other thing is that I can never remember who I wrote this stuff about. There you so go. You, you go into would... a, it's all like an etch a sketch, and you just shake it when you're done, right? It's all gone. Your memory. You're like, you know, okay, and, gone. And you would meet people, Today's Wednesday. You would meet people at, 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 at parties, and, um, and you would think, oh, God, I'm you know, really glad to meet you, really admired you, and they would look at you like me like I'm a crazy person, because it turned out I was, and I had written then some horrible thing about them, which I had literally no memory I of. love that. I, that would be a great scene in a movie where you're there and you're this powerful columnist and you need an assistant behind you going, you called him a douche last month. You said he was a ginormous douche. And you're like, did I? Oh God, I don't, I don't remember that at all. No, yeah. now, now I get, you know, when people have been sort of cold to me in this, I go and I search it. Michael Wolf, the following person and, and then I, you often find I've written, ah, yes. yes. <laughs> And then when you come out of that... Uh, uh... No, I got um, a kind of thrown out of New York Magazine because I tried to buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, You're um, doing deals again. Yeah. Um, so New York Magazine, its, it's, its owners put it up for sale, and I thought, why not? Um, um, so I, um, you know, I, I pulled together a, a, a bunch of... Mort. Billionaires, yeah. Um, <laughs> I love this. New York. Harvey, Harvey Isn't New York Weinstein, great? too. Was Harvey I mean, part of it? I mean, these, these guys, it was like, oh, my God. Um, um, and um, Don't you love New York? I pulled together a bunch of billionaires. That it sounds was easy. so good. You just had to call them up. Another toy for them to play with. Um, and um, in, in matter of fact, and they, they were so, so um, uh, um, kind of kind of enthralled with knowing each other that they missed the fact that another billionaire 
um, Wasserstein came along and, and bought it out from under us. So I had to leave then. It turned out, it was like, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Um, so I left and then went to Vanity Fair. What was, was the difference between the two, other than uh, weekly versus uh, monthly? That, that was a fundamental difference. Um, Longer form pieces for VF. Yeah, yeah. And you, and you were just, you know, so Vanity Fair, you essentially had to write two months in advance. So it was very hard to be that. I mean, it, I, Vanity Fair was... was um, um, did you enjoy was, the difference? I, I preferred the, the weekly. You did? Yeah. What was a piece that you were particularly proud of for Vanity Fair, a profile you did that you were pleased with? Name, you know, name one that you enjoyed writing. You know, you know, you know Cause it was, can't all be about two months of just venting your spleen, right? It began to be revenge. It was, was no, something I you mean, wrote there about. Were, there were a whole, Did you write one about somebody you admired and liked? Well, well here, you know, I had written, I had written um, many pieces uh, about the head of Disney, Michael Eisner. Right. Um, this was a man who really no one liked ever, apparently in his entire life. Um, um, <laughs> And I had written these these pieces, and then and then he um, he got to a particularly perilous point in his um, uh, in his tenure as the CEO of, of, of Disney, and he was on the verge of being thrown out. And, and Barry Diller called me up and said, "I would like you to go and see uh, see Michael Eisner and and do a piece about him." Everyone is now writing terrible things, so I know that you'll have to write the opposite of that. Uh, and I thought, hmm, I wonder if that's, that's true. So anyway, so I went to see Michael Eisner, which was embarrassing because I'd written these, these things. Um, I thought, this guy is great. <laughs> so I wrote a, I wrote a very you, you good You pretended piece he was great because Barry Diller asked you no, to? No, I found... Or I, you found the greatness I in him. I just went in and I thought, it is true. Everyone is saying you're terrible, so therefore I have to look at this in another way. And it turns out, when I look at it through that lens, oh my God, I love this guy. <laughs> Did that launch a deluge of positive pieces on you? Did you have a complete change of heart? No, no. Are just, you like just, Ebenezer Scrooge just, after the visitations? Are you it, like, God, I love this guy. It was. It turned and out I love to, that guy yeah. and that guy. Yes. Uh, and her, too. It turned out to be a one-time event. It was a one-time experience. My conversation continues after the break. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. 
That's why GameBridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. I've lived in New York for many years, and I've been hosting events and cutting ribbons and raising money for charities and the auctioneer for this. And I've been, you know, meandering around my quadrant of New York society, if you will, uh, most of it arts-related. And as I've mentioned to people, you know, Trump is someone who was, is an absentee. He's a drive-by figure in New York society. He'd come tuxedo on, the wife, who's lovely, by the way, is in the gown. It's red carpet. It's photo, photo, photo. But he's never a table mate. You're never sitting down and chewing the fat with Trump and getting to know him or learn about him. He never goes to the event. He's in, photo up, gone. It's a drive-by reality. So when people said to me, did you ever meet him? I said, I met him, but I never got to know him. What was your contact with him from New York Magazine days, VF days? What was that like? He used to call me up at New York Magazine, um, and I have no idea why. I was the media columnist, and he was as interested in the media as I was, as anyone was. So I got the calls. Now, the calls were not really about the media. They were about either something that had been said about him in the magazine or more more likely something that had not been said that he wanted said yes why wasn't he in this and why wasn't and then he would he would rail and 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 vamp and did I, he call and know. pretend to be his own publicist ever with you no no he was was very was, you know that story right yeah he, sure he was he was straightforward, um, and um, and and we we were sort of friendly. I mean, why there's no reason not to be not to be friendly um, because he would also heap enormous amount of flattery on 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 you. You're the best. He's You're a backslapper, the... and he cajoles people, and he and he says everything he needs to kind of enlist people in his cause. He's very warm. Yeah, he I'm actually told. says much more than he needs to say. Right. It right. just piles it, shovel, shovel. Right. Right. I mentioned this to you backstage. I'm not sandbagging you here. I said, the book seems, in, not in, in, in terms of your writing and the thinking, but like when I first saw the book and it came to me, I was stunned because I said, this looks like a book that would be in a prop in a movie. <laughs> it looks like something the prop department ran off really quickly. Like in the movie, 
A guy named Michael Wolf has written a book about Trump called Fire. It just looks like a really cheap. Uh, yeah, I told you. Yeah, Henry Holt. Then they whipped this thing off. They had this book. They knew you were a hot property. They knew this thing was just smoking and what have you. And they said, who cares about the cover? Just get it out there. It, it used to be uh, on the, f the, first, the first printing, it was actually even embossed. Um, and then they decided, oh, screw that. Let's just get them out there. I mean, I have said, people will say to me, I don't want to be overly self-referential here, but when I do this Trump shtick on TV, people say to me, what do you do? And literally, the three beats of what I do are embodied in this photograph. I tell people, left eyebrow up, right eyebrow down, and stick your mouth out like you're trying to suck the windshield out of a car. It's just... And I said, that's it. There's the photo. That's it. This is it, this picture. I'd swear that's me, actually. I, I, I so, so you know him in the way that you know a lot of the powerful and the and uh, the movers and shakers of uh, 212 life. And uh, when, his, when his political career uh, starts to take off, <laughs> does your relationship with him change? I'm no, I mean, I didn't really have that kind of relationship right. with him. It was just passing. If he saw me in a crowd, you know, this is a guy, you know, you, you know, he looks, when, whenever he's out in the, in, at night or at a party, um, it's, it's always he's looking for someone he knows. I mean, he has to connect with, and that's what it is. He's looking for recognition. Right. Um, and he's looking for others, other people who he thinks were, are worthy of him. So I'm, I would right. be like, a, um, like the in-between person that he would get on to until he saw somebody else. And then it was, um, and that's, so that was, uh, that was completely it. So nothing, no, no hostility in this relationship at all. And when, so in 2000, in uh, June 2016, uh, I did a piece, you know, so he had essentially vanquished all of the other Republicans. He was going to be the nominee. I mean, he was not going to be president in any logic that existed anywhere, but he was going to be the nominee. And I went out uh, to, do a, um, to do an interview with him for The Hollywood Reporter. Um, I, I went out because I, I went out to L.A. He was doing the, um, I think he was doing the, the, the Fallon show. Um, and so I was supposed to meet him there in the green room. And then it was like, so I come in. And it, and it was a perfect Trump moment of, of, of the kind of flattery that actually is, kind of really works. I mean, I walk in the door and, he, and he's like, oh my God, Michael Wolf. Um, they really send the big guns. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then one of his aides, actually Hope Hicks comes in and says, you, Mr. Trump, you have, you have 45 minutes. And he goes, 45 minutes. You don't give Michael Wolf 45 minutes. I remember that, yeah. Um, and then he says, um, and he says, okay, I've got to do the show. Come over to my house uh, in Beverly Hills afterwards and we'll sit around. Um, and so, first I thought, my God, he has a house in Beverly Hills. So it turns out um, he has a house in Beverly Hills um, uh, right on the corner of Sunset and Rodeo, this huge place. I meet him there, and he, you know, takes me to the refrigerator, and it's filled with pints of Haagen-Dazs ice cream. It's all the, <laughs> the whole thing, and he takes out two and throws me one, and he takes one. one. Right. Um, and there we sit on the couch with the, 
uh, with the ice cream, and and it doesn't. And it's but like, did you like ice cream, or did no, you? No, no. Um, it was a sacrifice you were making for your career. Um, and I sort of put it there, and then he goes um, to Jared Kushner, and Jared Kushner comes over and has to pick up the ice, my ice cream yeah. thing. Uh, like, yeah. It's all becoming clear to me now. No, but what I want to ask you is, is, that, is, is that, you know, there's been abundant criticisms of Trump in terms of his uh, demeanor and his behavior and his, 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 he's an emotional mess, he's in over his head. You know, we've heard a lot of that for a while, but I had not heard the assertion that Trump was betting against himself and thought he would lose the election, but nonetheless win if he, in, by losing the election, he would ultimately gain some another oxygen tank for his media career. When did that first come to your knowledge? Well, that was, you know, so I went into the White House shortly after January 20th. Right. Um, and, and, and I was just sort of began a series of conversations to, to no real point um, with, with the people around Trump. I mean, with, with, with his senior staff. Um, and I, and I was kind of under the protections, I, I suppose, of Steve Bannon. Um, um, and but did, did Bannon arrange and broker your admission into the White ba- House? Basically, I mean, yeah. everyone, Kellyanne Conway. I mean, everyone, and Trump himself. You know, I had asked during the transition. I had approached. I w- went to Trump, and I, and I said, I'd like to come in as an observer. And he thought I was asking for a job. Um, he had no idea what the jobs were in the in the White House. And I guess deputy assistant observer was a yeah. was a potential job. Um, um, and I said, no, I want to write a book. Michael, you're my number one observer. <laughs> Top observer. Anyway. And I said, no, no, I want to I write a book. And you could just see him deflated. The idea of a book was so boring to him. Um, um, but he said, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, um, and I went back to Steve Bannon, and I said, and I said he says, um, this is what he said, whatever. And he says, whatever is good. <laughs> And so that sort of became the fuel on, or the basis on which the, I was, I, I became sort of part of this group in the White House. And they would talk to me, you know, you know in ways that, that began to change over, over, the, over the course of when I was there. First, it was kind of rah-rah, um, and then it was rah-rah, but, you know, with, with, their, with their eyes, eyebrows going up, and then it was rah-rah with a gun to their head. Um, you, you mentioned in the book that a turning point is when he talks about Obama wiretapping them, and the, yeah. the, that was a big turning point for the morale inside the yeah. West Wing. And then they began to, and then actually these people really began to talk in, you know, try to understand how it was that they got here. And then the whole an anomaly of this of this situation, including the fact that they weren't supposed to be there, that all of this was that they all would have been better off in some way, not winning, and they all had kind of planned not to win. And in fact, everything that's going on now—the whole Russian investigation, the money laundering—all of this is really really a, a, the foundation here is that, you know, and I compare it to the producers that, you, you know, they go in and 
you know, and and the the act of winning, like the act of a hit show, means that they're completely a disaster. exposed. Right. You know, they're crooks. Um, right. And that's essentially. And someone, without obviously violating your your confidences and everything of your sources or what have you, uh, but someone actually said that to you that that, that, that was it more than oh, one person? Oh, more than one person. A variety uh, of people. Yes, I mean, I think there there's there was literally nobody who expected this to happen. I mean, and I mean, they felt the same way. I mean, they read the New York Times like everybody else. It's like this is not going to happen. Right. Um, um, and you know, and least of all. You know, it was, he was the one who, who, I mean, he was the one, most of all, who was surprised by this outcome. But Bannon, from what I read in your book, he believed, he saw that, that late shifting wind uh, the night of, he, he, even, or even day, in days in advance, what's the Comey uh, emails thing, puts the big bullet in her and blows a big hole, rather, a torpedo in her side. Bannon begins to see that there may be, just maybe. There's a slim chance we could pull I, this off. I went to, Bannon took over the campaign on August 15th, um, 2016. And um, I went up a week later to see him in Trump Tower. Um, and we sat down and he said, he's going to win. Um, we're going to do this. The, the path to victory is uh, Florida, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Now, I mean, I've, spent, I've been around politicians before, and they always say this kind of stuff. Um, and, I, and I thought, yeah, yeah, sure. And I didn't even write this. Um, but it turned out, obviously, to be absolutely true. And What do you credit Bannon, who we've obviously been uh, um, compelled to study his past and his CV and everything in Hollywood and uh, Goldman Sachs and his Navy career and so forth, and he's got no political experience prior to this. What do you attribute to his political acumen? Because when you think about it, he was right. I mean, he, he, he really saw if they were going to have a shot, they had to kind of split the arrow here in those four states, and they did. In your time speaking with him, what impressions did you get about him? Well, I, first, I mean, all, I mean, they're in the all, book, but share them with us. All, all positive impressions. I mean, I right. mean, Bannon is a, is a um, is smart, um, insightful, um, and his conversation is. I mean, when he starts, you really don't want him to stop, um, and he doesn't stop. So it's um, um, so it's a win-win. Uh, so yeah, um, but he had an insight, and the insight was about white working class people feeling um, gypped and screwed and, 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 and everything that we've sort of come to understand was under this underground anger. Um, right. and Bannon was on top of it. Yeah. So Bannon is, if I get this correctly, he's the one person who isn't surprised. Maybe he's mildly surprised or, uh, uh, intoxicated, whatever you want to say that they won, but but he really was a believer. He believed there was a chance. He he, he believed this movement could happen and it could elect a president. So, so I when mean, he, he was at the same time, um, I, I I think it was astounding to him that the president that that was going to be elected was Donald Trump. Does Bannon come and he's ready to govern because? I mean, there are some really, really troublesome and malignant policies that are being carried forth by this administration. Who's, 
who's in charge of that? Who's because Trump's not a policy person. Is Matt was Bannon in charge? Well, or, 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 well or Bannon just, was. No one was in charge. Right. I mean, I mean, in and I mean, the 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 singular issue here is that is that you know you brought into this into this White House people who had no. No connection to to each other and establishment actually, Washington. Also. Actually, it was even more. They wanted to kill each other, literally right. within within weeks. So you had you had Kushner and and Ivanka who were New York Democrats. Um, you had Bannon, who this alt right nationalist populist thing, and you had Ronce Priebus, who was a traditional. Uh, a traditional Republican, and they none of these things could ever come together. Um, they were all all inherently opposed to each other, and it soon got to the point where literally, I think, if they could have, if one could have assassinated the other, a hundred years before in 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 European courts, they would have assassinated each other, um, and so. And so you you had a White House certainly at least until until John Kelly comes in in August where literally nothing could happen because one would block the other for whatever they were trying and they, to do. And they did eventually uh, they did not pass any major legislation until the tax bill. So is it is it assumed then that McConnell in the one house and 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 Ryan in the other, they seize an opportunity, and they're the ones doing making the policy. Was yeah, it well, all ceded to the Congress? You know, the McConnell said, and I quote him as, as as saying, "He'll he'll sign anything we put in front of him," which I think is fundamentally true. He doesn't really care what it is; he just wants a win. Right. And he repeats this over and, and over again. To, to, to again, Trump. I mean, need a win. I want a win. Why can't you bring me a win? Uh, does Bannon lose his position there? Is Bannon gone? Because because eventually he wants to go because he realizes that Trump is an idiot as well. Totally. Yeah. He Com- does. He does. He doesn't want to stay there and watch this thing crash into the complete, iceberg. Complete. And he thought you know, and it's and it's. He thought I he mean, could change I mean, things. I think he always knew Trump was an idiot, but he thought he was his idiot. Right. Um, <laughs> But then it became clear that Trump was also Jared and Ivanka's idiot and, and many other people's idiots, so that nothing could really happen here. And then and, and, and there's an idiot, and then there's really an idiot. And so and I think that's what Bannon, uh, you know, and I sort of saw this, this transformation of, of okay, we can, we can work with this guy, to this guy is really. Bannon, just, Bannon am, I, am I right in assuming that Bannon felt he really needed to be in charge? He needed Trump to just sit down with him and let him guide him and focus him and do yeah, what and, he and, and, and Trump and, was going to say, the answer, this is a line somebody applied to a friend of mine once. He said, what's Bob going to do? And the answer was, who's the last person to speak to him? You know, like everybody that walked in the room was like, sure, you got it, wrap it up, whatever you want. And, and apparently Trump has the same disease, correct? Whoever walks in the room, he just says yes to whatever they want. Yeah, and, and, who, and the last person, he, he, I mean, Trump is not a bright guy. It shouldn't be release the tax returns. It should be release the transcripts. Um, it's one of the things that, that drives Trump crazy, the idea that somebody might see his college transcripts. Oh, Where's that Julian Assange when you need him? <laughs> Someone call the Bolivian embassy or whatever the hell he is. Uh, the, uh, um, everybody always said uh, that, the, that the one person who had his ear was his daughter. What's happened in that relationship, to your knowledge, in, in, during this year in the White House? 
Well, I, I mean, I think it's. I think she still does have his his ear, and I, I'd say she's am, am, among the key powers in the White House. It's it's uh, Ivanka Trump, and I think they are very much alike. They are very both transactional. Uh, you know, I mean, somebody somebody um, I know describes them both as without scruples. Um, um, and and I think that now, I mean, her position now is a difficult one because because I mean, I don't think she's going to be indicted, but I would place money that Jared is going to be indicted. Um, Jared's going to be indicted because Trump is stupid. <laughs> no, um, no, but 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 the the but, right, so you think well because I want to get to that as you step back. I mean, the book comes out. And, and I, I don't want to assume anything, the book comes out and you, one might automatically think that many of the people who you were talking to and had channels to uh, dry up and they don't want to talk to you. And something tells me that some of them might go the opposite way and want to talk to you even more because yeah. the ship is, 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 is slowly sinking now because the, the presumption is that, if he, that, that he's priming everybody now, Rosenstein and, and everything that he's talking about, to fire Mueller. He may actually be insane enough. Remember with Trump, things you swore were impossible in March are quotidian realities by November. I mean, there's things that are insane to contemplate. Six months later, it's just the daily routine there. And, it, and it's super hard to game this out because even if you invent a logic, a Trump logic, he's not only capable but likely of, of defying his own logic here. Right. So I couldn't tell you. Would I mean, it makes no sense, literally no sense do for people him you to talk fire to, Do you still speak to some people? Yeah. And do they tell you that he's going to fire Mueller? Um, they Is he contem- we know they contemplated that and well, was talked out of it. Well, even that, you know, you know the, the cont- that's an interesting story because the New York Times went with that story. He, he ordered the firing of, 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 of Mueller. He told McGahn, the lawyer, fire. And this became a, a major story and a kind of another evidence of his, you know, of his intent to obstruct justice, et cetera, et cetera. The truth is, and while he did order Mueller fired. That's correct in the story. He did order McGahn to fire Mueller. That is correct in the story. The truth is, this happens every day. So, so it's, it's a kind of thing. I mean, it just comes out of his mouth and everybody, everybody ignores him. So, so, you know, so everybody, um, you know, I, I saw their, uh, their, um, uh, I just want to, I wish I could just be in that room. He's there and he's like, I can't eat this ice cream with a plastic spoon. Give me a metal spoon, a proper spoon. Fire, Muller, fire, Muller. He's just like barking all these disparate, unconnected lines. Ice cream, Muller, fire him. Spoon. You know. I need more batteries for this remote. Remote. That he's on an island of kind of uh, uh, Dr. Moreau, or I don't know what it is. You know? <laughs> I mean, he's always been, I mean, this is actually always throughout his whole career, fire him, fire him. Yeah, I mean, didn't yeah. he have a whole what? show where that's right. what Yeah, he did? you're fired. 
I never watched that, that show. Was so the, I, that was know. the thing. So, so for the time's sake, he's he said he uh, he said Mueller should be fired. It's kind of like, oh yeah, but um, he says everybody should be fired, including Mueller, every day and almost every second of the day. I've, I've got a couple more questions for you because we're going to run out of time here. But but I want to say that I do sit there sometimes and go, I don't want to be this motherfucker again. <laughs> I can't do this again. I can't do it. You know. Are you sick of Trump? Oh, God. <laughs> Do you never want to hear, you, you, you don't want to ever hear about Trump again? Uh, is there anything left for you to say about Trump? Could there be more stuff from you about Trump or the White House or this experience? Or are you... Well, I'm not going to get back into the White House. Uh, right. Well, <laughs> let's never say never here. Um, if you bring ice cream, you might. Um, I mean, I, I absolutely believe I will get the call from him and he'll, he'll go blah, 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 blah and rant and rave and then he'll say, come on by. So you're not ruling out that you might uh, do another yeah, book? You, you know, sometimes one is called. Who knows? One is called. <laughs> in, an, in an article I was reading for, uh, to prepare for this, I, there was a quote that the writer gives from Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. And he writes, when parties view one another as mortal enemies, the stakes of political competition heighten dramatically. Losing ceases to be a routine and accepted part of the political process and instead becomes a full-blown catastrophe. When the perceived cost of losing is sufficiently high, politicians will be tempted to abandon forbearance. Acts of constitutional hardball may then in turn further undermine mutual toleration, reinforcing beliefs that our rivals pose a dangerous threat. And of course, I think what I'm piggybacking off of here is this notion of that uh, uh, members of Congress not, not applauding the State of the Union are treasonous. They're treasonous. Uh, do you ever go through this whole thing and you get sad or depressed where you really are worried for the country? Are you worried for the country? When you do this, you, you kind of become part of it. What I, and so I, I didn't feel myself looking this from the big lens. It was, it was very much up close, very much about the people who were most directly involved in this. Um, so I'm not thinking about the country. I think what I felt most of all is that everybody there was tainted by this and felt tainted by this and believed that they would not come out ahead, that this was a net loss, all of the people around Trump. That's, what, that's the conclusion that they came the to. The opposite of what you would expect people to feel. Yeah, to and remember, serve remember people come out of the White House and they make lots of money and right. they're famous and they have lots of influence. And, and maybe and, proud of their work. Yeah, exactly, and literally... All of these people who went in thinking this would happen to them and came out as the months rolled on thinking this, this is all broke. Um, this is not going to work. This is not going to end well for anybody. The Democratic Party needs opposition. I don't want the Democrats to call all the shots either. I don't want the Democrats to be unopposed either because that's, that's not good for the country. 
we need, whether it's an independent party or we stick with the two-party system, that I, I don't see that changing. We need, we need a healthy Republican Party. We need a right-thinking Republican Party. I, I hope that the Republican Party, uh, once this guy is gone, and I hope that is soon, they make some effort to heal themselves because it's really, really not good for the country to see the Republican Party drive off the cliff the way they've done with this guy, you know, handcuffed to the steering wheel. Um, I want to say, um, as we finish... Uh, so this is a podcast my radio show. I want to thank my producers, Emily Botin, Kathy Russo, and Adam Teicholz. Michael Wolf, everybody. Michael Wolf. Thank you so much. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.